0: Brother David Vaughn, come and preach the Word of God to us. May the Lord help you and bless you and use you in the doing of it, brother. We we just love you so very much and pray for you. And uh, now we need you to come and speak to us God's holy word. Come under the Word of God with you tonight. And I plead the blood of Christ on myself as a man who needs forgiveness for my many disobediences, uh, as a missionary and as a Christian, uh, witness. So I uh, pray and have prayed, uh, much on the plane, had much time, uh, before this coming here and, uh, in the last couple of days that I may Come under the word of God with you tonight and that, uh, that our Lord would bless us. Building churches with evangelistic and missionary zeal and activity. Um, I have seven things to say to you tonight. I hope that doesn't distress you. Uh, I hope to uh, move through them quickly enough, but uh, slowly enough so that we can, uh, uh, we can consider them together. We want to try to understand together tonight and get a portrait from from the from the Lord in His Word of a mission of a missionary uh, and evangelistic church. That's what we want to be, all of us. That's all what you, all you pastors want your churches to be. And the Word of God speaks to us about this and tells us this is what God has called us to be. This is what He'll equip us to be. And uh, we plead for His wisdom. I'm going to say the seven points, and uh, then we'll just go through them. There's an element of clear vision that we need. There's an element of dependence. There's an element of spirituality. There's an element of evangelistic preaching in our church, in our local churches. There's an element of congregational contact with non-Christians. There's an element of worldwide orientation in our mindset, and there's an element of self-denial. I can't see how I, would, how I could leave out any one of those and, and do justice. And uh, as I have prepared, I've asked God to keep in my mind the situation here. Uh, maybe I'd have to add a couple of points if I was speaking to the French people. Uh, and, I'm not, of course, I'm not going to say everything that could be said. But uh, I trust and, and hope and pray that uh, what God's word will have to say to us will be relevant and uh that indeed will will go away from here changed and different by the effect of God's word upon us that's really what matters uh, it was about 20 years ago that i stood in this place as i began developing support to go to uh to go to france it's hard for me to believe it was 20 years ago i turned 50 this year in 20 years, I'll be 70. And Moses' psalm said that the man's years are 70 if he's strong 80. In a way, I hope it'll be 70 for me. When I think of how quickly it's gone from the time first time that I was here, talking about going to France until now, and that may be all the time I have left, and then only, turn, only until eternity where the unseen becomes real. And when I think of how feebly I have given back unto the Lord for what He's done for me as a, as a missionary and as a, as a Christian and witness and mission, and I'm being absolutely honest before you, I say to the Lord, oh help me, do something new for me too. So we'll begin with the, uh, with the issue of a clear vision. And I want to speak particularly to you pastors, but uh, everyone here certainly will feel themselves to be concerned by God's word. But, dear pastors, you and I have to give to our churches a particularly clear vision about what the local churches of Jesus Christ and the universal church, what we're about in these last days. Would you read with me in Luke chapter 24? You remember... This uh, appearing of our risen Lord to his disciples. And in verse 44, we find these words. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, of course, the Old Testament scriptures. And now our Lord is going to put aside everything that's secondary and he's going to give them the main point and central teaching of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, often we say to ourselves, what is the main and central message of the Old Testament scriptures? And we say he's coming. He's coming to to accomplish salvation. And that's certainly not untrue. But our Lord does not summarize the Old Testament scriptures in that way. He gives the Old Testament scriptures a dual center. Two things and not one. Not simply Jesus Christ is coming to accomplish salvation. But that and something else. Let's read. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, number one, that the Christ should suffer on the third day and on the the third day rise from the dead. And it is written, number two, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Our Lord says that through the Old Testament, we have a message of a day of glory coming. And that day, sometimes we call it the Messianic age. We're in it. It was ushered into being by the incarnation and the ministry and the death of our blessed Lord. But that day of glory to which the prophets looked and they wanted they, they wanted to understand uh, so so badly was a day of glory because of two things and not one. It was a day of glory because God the son would become a man and because he would die and expiate the sins of his elect people. But it was a, it's a day of glory also because that salvation would then go out and be proclaimed through all the nations. Here is the dual glory, the accomplishment of salvation and the proclamation of that salvation and the gathering of all the nations. Now, perhaps we can say it this way. When we read all the Old Testament, we get the image that the God that we have, the God who is there, and before we whom we speak and listen tonight, is a God on a mission. All throughout the Scriptures, He's pictured Himself, and it's true. He has been, He ever has been, He is, and He will be, a God on a mission. That's very important, isn't it? And that mission that absorbs the divine heart, and we bless Him that it does, is that all the nations shall see the glory of the Lord and that one day the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so we see it in the prophets and all the Old Testament. We hear this constant talk about the nations. The nations will be blessed in you, Abraham, to Moses. God swears and says that I live all the extremities of the ter- of the earth I'm speaking in French sorry la terre the-, the earth shall see my glory over and over again there's something on the heart of god and all this time we're only in the preparation stage of the mission but when our lord comes the mission comes in full force and when our lord goes to heaven the second glory is beginning the first, is great accomplishment of salvation. And the second, the proclaiming of that salvation and the gathering in. And we see it all over the place, don't we? We see it in Malachi when it says that Zion will become the chief of all mountains. Of all mountains and peoples will flow into it because out of Jerusalem will go law. Out of out of uh, Jerusalem will sound the word of God. Here's that prophecy, not only that Christ would die and accomplish salvation, but that that salvation would go out and it would be a glory that would go out and, and and gather in the nations quickly. We'll just glance at Acts 26 to see that this is repeated by the Apostle Paul and his defense before Agrippa. We're reading verses 22 and 23 of chapter 26. And the Apostle Paul says this. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and great. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And here is the double summary again. Number one. That the Christ must suffer. And number two. By being the first to rise from the dead, he, implied through the church, would proclaim light both to our people and to the nations. I want to read one more passage where we can get one example of this Old Testament looking forward to the fact that There is something going on today since our Lord's departure that is glorious. All the Old Testament spoke of it. All the Old Testament, when you put aside other secondary things, said, now here is the glory. Here is where God makes himself glorious in the the accomplishing of salvation and in this gathering in of the nations. I'm reading to you from the very last portion of the book of Isaiah in chapter 66. Don't bother to turn there if you don't wish. But I'm reading verses 18 to 20. And here it is. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming. And for us it's, it's now. Together all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Toll, and Lud, who draw the bowl, to Tubal, and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. The Old Testament is telling us that the Christ would die, and then, that in these times... The gospel of salvation will be preached to all the nations. So we could say it this way. The Old Testament is not only messianic. It's missional. And perhaps we should say it's missional because it's messianic. Because the way Paul says it is because of his rising, Jesus Christ would be the first to proclaim. And so we can stop and say it is God's mission. It is never our mission, dear people. The moment we take it upon ourselves and we think it's our mission and we want to be good, don't we? So we want this to be somehow something that lives in and of itself in our hearts. We're we're in trouble. It is the mission of God. It has lived in the divine heart of pure, holy love, and it will always live there and never change. And we catch it by resting staying in communion with our God. But it is his mission. Now. Why am I laboring this? And this point is a bit longer than the others. What is the importance of this? We must come to understand in our local churches that missions is not one of the activities of a local church. We must become gripped by the fact that all the Old Testament says this is it. Now, I understand That we do and we are many things as a church. We worship. We pursue holiness. But in all of this, it's never detached from the fact that we are a sent people. We cannot but be a sent people. Our Lord says, as the Father sent me, I send you. Now think of the Lord Jesus for a moment. Our Lord was many things as the perfect man. He worshipped. He prayed. He pursued holiness. But can we ever think of Jesus apart from his saviorhood? Can we ever think of anything about him that is not intimately attached to the fact that he is the sent one? I came from heaven to earth to seek and to save the lost. This is it. And as I have been sent, so send I you. We must have a clear vision. This is a day of glory. And the glory of this day is the proclaiming of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, to all the nations, every one of them, that they may come and bow and be amazed at the mercy of God. The second point If we can, as pastors, work and strive and pray to convince, by God's grace, our churches of this fact that this is what we are. We're lampstands for the world. The second element would be an element of dependence. An element of dependence. I would like to simply refer very quickly to two passages. And uh, I'm not... I'm really here to exhort this this evening, and not so much to give some sort of in-depth exegesis of passages. So I'm just going to I'm going to give it to you and pray that it would be a, like, like a nail that would be fastened to our hearts. Our Lord says in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. He says now after the scripture says now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel passing alongside the sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, said our Lord, follow me and I Will make you fishers of men Now We know in what special sense The apostles were fishers of men We understand that We know in what sense you full-time Pastors are fishers of men But we also know That In every generation there are fishers of men Not just the apostles And in one sense All of the church of God is a fisher of men. All. The whole idea of fisher of men is an idea that's attached to the last times. That's why our Lord says the kingdom of God is like a net that's cast into the sea and it gets all kinds of fish. And then you filter out the good from the bad. It's the kingdom time. It's the last days we're in. Fishers of men, when they become fishers of men, it means we're in the last time. When the whole church of God is a fisher of men, we're in the last days. Now, here's the point. The Lord Jesus says to us, only he can make fishers of men. How is your church and mine going to become a church with evangelistic zeal, boldness, activity, fruitfulness, Near and far. There's only one answer. And it's here in this passage, isn't it? If a local church represented here becomes fruitful and zealous and proclaiming gospel here and far, do you know what's happened, dear people? A miracle from heaven. It takes supernatural power from the invisible heavenly places to make sinners like us Evangelist in the world. It really will not happen in human power. There is no 30 day plan that I can give you. And one of the elements that we must come and admit and bow before is there must be a dealing with God in our local churches. We must struggle and deal with God over the issue of our evangelistic and missionary activity. Mustn't we? We must come before God and evaluate ourselves. I recently did it with our church and I said, here's where I think we're at in evangelism. And here's here's where we need to confess to the Lord and plead. It's interesting to me that when Paul writes the Ephesians, he says, pray for me that I would be bold in witness. And when he writes the Colossians, he says, pray for me that I would have boldness in mission And he seems to think that it's such a thing that's above human power that not only must he pray and supplicate God, but he's getting other people to pray all over the place for him. And he's saying, pray for heavenly power to come upon me. Without it, it won't happen, even for me, an apostle. And in Acts 4, we see the men praying also again, and they're saying, Lord, grant that we may with boldness. Proclaim your gospel. And the place was shaken where they were. It was shaken so that we could see visibly what sort of power is necessary for an answer to prayer. Give me the boldness that is the pivot which depends, which determines whether I'm going to be a witness or not. Often it's that, isn't it, for our local churches. I was on the plane on the way over here and I found out I was sitting next to a Russian physicist who was a university professor coming to an international conference in Baltimore, and I had prayed before coming, Lord, I'm available to you. Don't let me sit in my guilty silence like I do sometimes. Open my mouth. And then when you hear, he's an extremely brilliant Russian physicist. <laughs> Give me boldness, Lord. And I was pleading. He didn't know I was praying. We had a wonderful conversation for an hour about the gospel. I don't know. He didn't seem to be convinced by me. But nevertheless, even me, even me, the Lord can open my mouth. The Lord can open our mouths. Let me ask you a question, dear pastors. In your church prayer meetings, how often is their prayer specifically, give us that Holy Spirit boldness for witness near and far? Oh, we plead. It is a thing above and beyond us. There's an element of dependence, isn't there? The third element is an element of spirituality. I would like to refer to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you notice in verse 7 of this chapter, there is a very important statement about... uh, The Thessalonian church. It says this. Paul says to the Thessalonian church so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Why? The next word for because not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. In Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. They themselves report concerning us what what kind of reception we had among you. Now, some people misunderstand and they think that what went out was some sort of report about the the, uh, Thessalonians' conversion. But Paul never calls a report about someone's conversion the word of the Lord. He's saying the word of the Lord, the gospel, went out from you. Way beyond you. And he says, you are a pattern for the other churches in that. Now, notice what he says in verse three. He is considering this church, specially as a model working church, a model of missionary work. And he says this for once in the New Testament, he does not pray. He does not praise God and thank God for their faith, love and hope. He changes it a bit remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, because he's thinking of them not just as a church, but as this missionary working church. And the lesson of this verse three, which is very important, is that all missionary work comes out of faith, love and hope. Your work out of faith, if we were to give the literal Meaning of this work, your your work flowing out of faith, your labor that's flowed out of love and your perseverance, I think probably he means to say in this work out of hope. Very simply, we can say that our local churches must never pursue missionary zeal and activity as a separate thing. It's a form of godliness. It's an outflow of faith. If we believe what the gospel says and who God is, we must say, like the apostles, we cannot stop saying what we have seen and heard. Think of it for a moment with me. Just We want to pause and just try to understand this and let it get into our hearts and into our bones. Everything that we do and witness far or near is a result of the fact that Biblical faith is living and growing in us. Ere since by faith I saw the streams that thy, how does it go, flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. A work of faith, isn't it? But in another way, we could say it like this. No one ever goes to do what he thinks is absolutely impossible. And many people are stopped from going to the mission field or doing something for those who do go because of lack of faith. Spurgeon said, A man says, I'll do what I can. Any fool can do that. The man who believes attempts the impossible And achieves it. Attempts the impossible. Hudson Taylor said there are three stages in every work of God, the great missionary in China. First, it is impossible. Second, it's difficult. And third, it's done. Always. I believe it with all my heart. I didn't think I would run into it so quick, but uh, they refused our visa to go to France when we wanted to go 20 years ago, and so we were stopped. So we decided to go anyway. Our things were already packed up, so we didn't know what to do. So we went. We said, we'll go. Hoping that we could get a visa once there. We could go for three months as tourists. Realize you can't get a visa in the country where you're going. You have to be outside of the country. So we went to London and uh, to the French uh, embassy, and they said, we can't help you you're American we only we can only help English people we're the british embassy in london and guys, that's what the guy said to me but hold on just a minute i'll go see my superior wasn't even supposed to be there he came back and he said tout le monde est de bonne humeur aujourd'hui everybody's in a good mood today <laughs> here's your visa Faith, it's a work of faith. It's a labor of love, isn't it? Everything we do in missions, everything we do in witness, near and far, is because of the fact that biblical love for Christ and for poor sinners is living in our hearts and growing. And here's, I guess, where I admit to you that I have been worked over the most And wept the most in preparing this message. And thinking of my own life and all the times when I have not witnessed and I have not been bold. And it's been my foolish pride and selfishness. And thinking about it and searching myself and thinking as if to see the Lord, his blessed heart, grieved and saying about me, not enough love, not enough love, not enough love. The one who loved me all the way to a cross. I tend to think that's about it. Not enough love. But then there's the perseverance of hope. What's the effect of hope on missionary zeal? Well, hope changes our priorities, doesn't it? It causes us to consider earthly blessings and comforts as secondary and race toward heavenly ones, doesn't it? Hope is that certainty of eternal glory that becomes so real to us that it dominates us more than this present life. When this sort of hope is living in us and growing, then we can leave this. We can leave family. We can leave friends. I'm struck by the fact that Jim Elliott so often spoke of eternity and of death, and seemed to have a foot already in the world to come. You remember him? He was martyred uh, in the 1950s at, uh, I think, 29 years of age. But he would say things like this. He said at one point, uh, so few hours must my heart beat on and then on into eternity where the invisible becomes real. Steadfastness of hope. Sam, Samuel Zwemer wrote an interesting article on missions, and he always tended to give very good titles to his articles. This one was called The Otherworldliness of Missionary Enterprise. In the measure in which we are selfish, which is the opposite of love, unbelieving, and doubting, which is the opposite of faith, and worldly, Which is the opposite of hope. We will not do much for missions. God help us. God help us to seek godliness. The fourth element. a Clear conviction. Of our missionary task in these last days. The element of deep dependence. The element of spirituality. The element of evangelistic preaching by the pastors, and now I want to address this particular word to those who preach the gospel among us. In the book of Acts, chapter uh, 17, Paul is speaking to, excuse me, chapter chapter twenty, verse 17. As he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Now, it's important to uh, for us to realize that he's speaking to elders. He's an apostle, but he's speaking to elders. And he says to this, this to them in uh, verse uh, 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me. Through the plots of the Jews. But I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public. Here's the preaching. And from house to house. In informal social settings. And informal preaching opportunities. He says. That was the pattern of his ministry. Testifying to both Jews and to Greeks. Of repentance toward God. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel. Now, if we go on down in the passage, we find that later Paul says something about the fact that he worked with his own hands. And he says, in this way, in all these things, I have shown to you that by working with my hand, working hard, we're to serve the Lord. In other words, in this passage, Paul is not just defending his ministry and saying, I was a real apostle. So accept the gospel, accept my message. I'm proving to you that this was for real. He is saying that. But in the whole passage, he's also getting himself as a pattern. He's saying, look at the way I ministered with you and I showed you how you must do yourself. So this passage is for the elders and the preachers here. And it says that we've got to preach the gospel in formal situations and in informal situations. Now, I want to just say one word about this. This should not be a matter of debate among us. I hope that it's not. In a sense, we preach the gospel every time we preach from the pulpit, don't we? But preaching in the way that Paul's speaking about faith toward Christ and repentance toward God, he means that special sort of preaching which is directly intended as its primary goal to convert lost sinners unto Jesus Christ. How often do you do that sort of preaching? Here's the reason I'm asking the question. How can your local church be full of zeal for evangelism near and far when they don't catch it from you? Very often. A church where there is evangelistic preaching and the pastors are going after sinners with tears and love and preaching directly to them. And sometimes you feel an excitement in the air because you feel that men, lost men, are being laid hold of by the preacher. And there's something going on that's bringing men out of darkness into light. I remember as a young Christian being in a church that had a wonderful evangelistic ministry. And perhaps in those days there there was too many uh, messages on for, for the sinners and not enough for the say, but let's don't uh, overreact. But I remember sitting in the pew sometime and feeling like I was on the edge of my seat as a young convert. Because the preacher, it felt to me as he was getting right inside the skin of the non-Christians. And it gave me the desire to go out and get them and bring them and say, listen to this. This is what you need to hear. And it also made me want to go out, stand on the rooftop and do the same thing. We need that to happen in our churches. Now, the modern reformation has been a wonderful act of God. There's no doubt. And we should thank him much for it. I wonder if sometimes we've not lost the example of our heroes. Contemporary heroes in the, in the, in, in the previous generation. It brought us to reform faith in this matter of evangelism. Did you know that Van Til did open-air preaching? Open-air preaching. Did you know, do you know how John Murray spent his summers? He created the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England. And he went up every summer and he, he, he brought, brought seminary students and others. And they went up and did preaching in New England. And house-to-house evangelists. John Murray. That's what he was like. That's what he thought reform ministry was. Ian Murray says this about Dr. Lord Jones. Well, first of all, let me tell you this. Once people were giving some compliments about the doctor in the presence of his wife, and she said, if anyone is going to understand my husband, they must first understand, they must understand that he was first of all a man of prayer, and second of all, an evangelist. Now, a lot of people don't understand that about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his preaching ministry. In fact, Ian Murray says in his biography of Lloyd-Jones that from reading the published works of Lloyd-Jones, many people in the reform movement today have gotten exactly the opposite impression from the reality about the proportion and weight that evangelistic preaching had in his ministry. Lloyd-Jones himself said he believed that every local church needed to have at least one purely evangelistic sermon every week. And his was every Sunday night. He preached evangelistically. He went after the sinners. He left the saints alone. Not really. But also, if you count the fact that Lloyd-Jones, before he got to the pulpit the next Sunday, had probably most weeks than preaching two or three times somewhere else in the United Kingdom outside of his own church and almost always preaching evangelistic sermons. You see, in Westminster Chapel, there was an excitement. There was a feeling that the gospel saves sinners. And it's a wonderful gospel. And we're full of zeal. To save the lost. To go and get them. Because they saw it all the time. It was happening all the time in front of them. What should you do? There must, be, there must be structures in our local churches, dear pastors, for this to happen. Maybe it's not every Sunday evening. But if we're, I believe with all my heart, if we're ever to have Reformed Baptist churches that become powers For missionary and local evangelistic outreach. This has got to happen in our churches. There have got to be times when we say at least once a quarter. We're having an evangelistic service. And we're giving out invitations. And the members are going to take invitations. And go get their friends. And say come. We're having a special message. It's about this. And it will interest you. The way we've done it in France at times. Is to rent out a hall. A hall. The mayor's office, some place where the people come for other things, they're used to it because the French people don't like to. Most have never been inside a Protestant church. It's a bit fearful. We have it on a Friday night. We say, well, the subject's going to be, is there any meaning in life? But I'm going to preach the gospel. Or with all the suffering and evil in the world, could God exist? But I'm going to get to the cross. But I'm going to start where they're at. However you do it. May it be planned. May it be determined. May it be regular. And certainly I believe this will contribute to your church having evangelistic and missionary uh, zeal and outreach. The next thing concerns the members of the church. The next point as the element of congregational contact with the world. Now We all know uh, that witness is done by preachers but also by laymen. I hear that there is somewhat of a debate about these things and I hope that the enemy does not cause us at all to become upset with one another about such an issue as witness. This would be just his way. It would be just his ruse. We all know that I heard Sinclair Ferguson say it recently in a, in, a, in a message that most people come to Christ through the preaching of called preachers. Perhaps that's true. At least they, the preachers, often are the last one to draw the net. But we also know that most people come to Christ because they've been gospelized by non-preachers before they ever heard a preacher. John Nevius, the great missionary in the night in the eighteen uh, Hundreds, early 1900s in China was asked how most of the 30,000 Christians in China of his time had come to Christ. And he listed about five ways in which they'd spread the gospel in China. Itinerations. I mean, open air preaching, traveling from place to place, literature, and several other things. And he spoke of the vast amount of each that they had done. The hundreds of thousands of open air preaching and the millions of tracts. And he said at the end, But the thing that has brought more people to Christ in China than all the others put together is informal social contact. So our people must be in the world. Our Lord gave the example. He was the friend of sinners. He was eating with sinners. And this is a great point of necessity for us. How can your church have evangelistic zeal? If they don't have any good friends who are are non-Christians. Now, this can become a problem in America. Especially as we become more polarized in this day between the believing and the unbelieving. There's a temptation to draw back. To close ourselves among ourselves. There are things that we do that may be quite good in and of themselves. But they also have dangers. Things like homeschooling or Christian schooling, which may be the way of wisdom for your family. But if you do this, you must make a concerted attempt to find some way that you're in contact and in activities with non-Christian people. I had the experience a few years ago of having a meal with a Reformed Baptist family, dear family, godly family with several children. Homeschooled them all. The oldest had just finished her high school. Was heading off to university. No homeschooling university around for her. And they said to me that night. To be quite frank with you. We're scared to death. To send her off. Because she's never had a non-Christian friend. I wanted to weep. That is called hiding your light under a bushel. This is something that we have to work at, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps pastors more than anybody. Because by the nature of our work, we're with with the flock, aren't we? But whatever it takes, we need to be out there meeting non-Christians. And my... Uh, My my question to you is, the people in your church, and perhaps you yourself, and I ask myself the question too, how often do we have non-Christian friends around our supper table? Non-Christian friends that are not connected with our family. We have uh, families in our church, Christian families in our church, that are constantly having non-Christian families around their dinner table. Such a gift to have people like that. And much, many of the converts that you saw on the photos was just because of that one thing. I get invited to meals where I know they're inviting some non-Christian friends and they're inviting me to, just in case there's a question or two that they can't answer. <laughs> I think it's great. It's fantastic. This is so important. Congregational contact with the world. The sixth element is the element of worldwide outlook and orientation. Our Lord says, as you remember, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, of all the nations. And he says in this, I will be with you every day until the end of the age. The commission remains. We're under it today. We're under that glorious, adventurous commission. And I believe it's the greatest adventure that a human spirit could ever be involved in. The greatest mission. Imagine it. Sent by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth with his own power to all nations. But the all nations means that your congregation and mine must have a worldwide outlook. Worldwide outlook. What do I mean by that? I mean that. In our churches. Churches. A visitor must not be able to be there very long before he's struck by the fact that this church is always talking about all these cultures and peoples and nations and their mouths. Did you know that there are huge swaths of humanity today uh, that are still unreached by the gospel? There are 20 times more people today that have not heard the gospel than there were on the day of Pentecost. In Europe, darkest Europe, the only continent where Christianity is declining, among the Buddhists, the Hindus, and the Muslims. Among those groups, researchers tell us that one out of seven people have no Christian acquaintance that they could go and ask about the gospel even if they had a question. Do your people know in your church know that? Do they know where these hidden peoples are? Do they know where to go and find that information? Are there missionary biographies on your table? Do you have a prayer meeting meeting That's that's given to missions or largely given to missions or some way of often regularly praying for missions. King's Chapel in Cincinnati church where Tom Wells was for many years the pastor. Dear brother wrote vision for missions every Sunday morning. I've been in that church and they read a little half sheet about one country and pray for it every Sunday. They've been through Operation World, I don't know how many many times, from end to end, in the Sunday service. I don't know how you do it. For nine years in our church in France, we had a prayer meeting for missions for the nations, and only for that, uh, once a month, every Sunday afternoon. We've got to do it somehow. But do we have that worldwide orientation? Are you using Operation World, even with all its weaknesses? Uh, Do your people here teach an exhortation on world missions? Do you have a missionary conference? Do people have the the mental image that missionary enterprise of taking the gospel to the nations is the most glorious and happy thing that's happening in the world today? Do you... Do the people in your church think that it's important for children to learn other languages? Because of this very simple fact, the gospel must go out in words of somebody's language. Do your church members take advantage of opportunities for contact with foreign students that live in your city? Or foreign exchange programs? Is it the world, the world, the world? May God help us to be so. It's a, it's an exciting thing, to be involved in the nations, and to think about Bolivia, and Azerbaijan, and uh, uh, Thailand, and all of these peoples who need the gospel. The last element: a clear vision, real dependence vital spirituality, ongoing evangelistic preaching, congregational contact with non-Christians, a worldwide orientation in our church life, but with all those things, we'll not be sending men unless the last point is present, which is the element of self-denial. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, again Paul, as he says goodbye, and he gives this uh, pattern of his ministry in verses 22 to 24, says this. He says, now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Sometimes it's better. <laughs> I just heard uh, two weeks ago in a pastoral conference that my dear friend Paul Wells, who systematic theology professor at the uh, at the Reformed seminary in the south of France told another pastor whom I was with two weeks ago Paul's been in France he's English he's been in France for 40 years he's done a wonderful work but he told this young pastor and the pastor told me Paul said if my wife and I had known what it would be like, what it, would, what, what it was going to be like, raising children in the French society, we would have never come. It's tough. My children have never known a child in all their classes, from primary to high school, who was a church attender in their class. Catholic, Protestant, anything. I don't know what Paul meant. I don't think he meant we did the wrong thing if we had to do it again. I know he he didn't mean that. I think he just meant sometimes it's better not to know. But Paul does know something. He knows enough to perhaps uh, make us shrink. He says he he didn't shrink, but... uh, he says, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, uh, not, nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And the question is, what in the world could stop a man like that? A man like that could go anywhere. He says, I don't count even my life as precious. All throughout the New Testament, we find that missionary work advances through self-denial and suffering. Death works in us, Paul says. But life in you. And that wasn't a concept for him. It was a hard Weary, painful, costly reality. Missionaries are not going to be raised up in our church if we do not have a strong culture of self-denial. It is not enough for us to say God is most glorified when we most enjoy him. It is not enough. It is a glorious truth, but I fear that there's something woefully inadequate about that. And I believe that if we're bathing ourselves constantly in that one thought about the Christian life, we need to stop and read Calvin's Institutes, Book 3, and the chapters on the Christian life every month for 12 months. Especially the article on self denial Calvin said, We are not to expect anything in this life but difficult, hard, and costly uh, trials, for God will put His people to a definite test. Calvin said, This is not the place primarily of enjoyment. That's heaven. We do delight ourselves in the Lord. We do enjoy. Yes, oh yes, more and more may it be so. But that is not the only note, there's another note. And the other note is that may God enjoy it when we do his will, forgetful of the whole issue of enjoyment, because his will must be done. It is the cross here. It is the crown later. If you've been in reformed circles for long, you've heard this excellent statement of. Robert Murray McShane, I'm being a little bit provocative. Forgive me. He said, uh, "What do my people need the most? Right? They need my personal holiness. How true, but how woefully inadequate. And if we stop there, brethren, we veered away from John Murray and Cornelius Van and Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones and George Whitfield and John Peyton." And Adoniram Judson. Pursuit of holiness, but I believe that if we quote Murray McShane, we better put C.T. Studd next next to him. My people need my personal sanctification, but the missionary C.T. Studd, who died in Africa, who went, and they said, "Your body is a museum of diseases, sir. You are an old man. If you go to Africa, you've been a missionary on two continents already—China and India, I think it was." And now you're going to Africa. And he said, if I die, my, may my tombstone be a stepping stone for younger men to step on me and go farther. He stayed for 16 years. And there were, I think, 15,000 African Christians at his at his funeral that had been won to Christ because he dared to go with his body a museum of diseases. C.T. Studd said this, and we added to Murray McShane. God's ideal of a saint is not a man who's primarily concerned about his own sanctification. God's ideal of a saint is 50% soldier. 50% soldier. And soldiers die on battlefields. The element of self denial. Awake my soul, stretch every nerve, and press with vigor on. A heavenly race demands thy zeal, and an immortal crown. We can take great hope, brethren, because everything that we've mentioned today, tonight, though we see our great need and sin in all of these areas, we look aside from our sin, we look aside for our need, And we see this scene at the end of our Lord's life. He breathes on the apostles, symbolizing the giving of the Spirit of God and His all-sufficient power. He breathes on them the Son of God. And He says, Go, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. We can do all things through Christ. May He help us too for His glory.